Good morning. It's Sunday, August 30th. Welcome to this online resource for at-home spiritual growth as we transition from pandemic stay-at-home orders to resuming public worship at Redeemer Lutheran Church in an outdoor setting. You can download a PDF of today's service from our website. You can print it out and follow along at home that way. Or you can follow along with the prompts as they appear on the screen. God bless your worship today with growth from his word. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. Hasten to save me, O God. O Lord, come quickly to help me. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Praise and thanks to God. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, and a great King above all gods. The deep places of the earth are in his hand. The heights of the hills are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 67 May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine upon us. May your ways be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule the peoples justly, and guide the nations of the earth. Then the land will yield its harvest, and our God, our God will bless us, God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. The Holy Gospel is Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. This will be the basis for today's sermon. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On the one hand, the scene in today's gospel from Matthew chapter 15 is familiar to readers of the Bible. Someone needs help, they ask for help, and Jesus helps. In this case, it was a woman whose daughter was suffering from demon possession. But on the other hand, the scene in today's gospel 
seems utterly foreign to readers of the Bible. The woman needs help. She asks for help. And Jesus, well, Matthew puts it pretty bluntly, Jesus did not answer a word. Nothing. In fact, the silent treatment went on long enough, the disciples became so annoyed at the sound of the woman's pleading that they urged Jesus, just give her what she wants so she'll go away. Now, if we find the silence of Jesus awkward, we'll find his words even more so. When he finally spoke up, he said to this poor woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And when she asked yet again for help, he said, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And yes, that is, is, that is as insulting as it sounds. In fact, I think we'd all agree this is a pretty troubling scene. Christians who are accustomed to hearing of Jesus meek and mild find a Jesus here neither meek nor mild. It seems he's hardly even civil. Christians who assume every last word that comes out of Jesus' mouth is some kind of systematic doctrinal statement can hardly make heads or tails out of this kind of talk. Honestly, this scene raises eyebrows for just about anyone. But you know what's really troubling about this scene? It's that Jesus was doing what men of his society would expect a teacher of his stature to do. In other words, what's troubling is that Jesus' peers wouldn't find this to be troubling at all. If Jesus were to respond kindly to the Canaanite woman, he'd actually damage his reputation among Jewish men because he'd be repudiating one of their most deeply held religious and social convictions, that they, the Jewish men, were God's most favored people. There's even an ancient prayer, an ancient Jewish prayer, that goes something like this, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, because you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. See, to Jewish men, this woman coming to meet Jesus was a persona non grata, a deplorable, a no one. She was a woman, first of all, and as if that weren't enough in their eyes, she was a Canaanite woman, which was a particular ethnic and religious group notorious not just for idolatry, but particularly disgusting and degenerate forms of idolatry. So there was this religious and ethnic hostility between Jews and Canaanite people, and and this was a real, sustained, and ugly enmity. And that's why no one was surprised, really, at Jesus giving this woman the silent treatment. That's why the disciples of Jesus didn't want him to help her because it was the compassionate thing to do, but because they just wanted to get away from her. In their mind, a good Jewish teacher would behave exactly this way. But is that what Jesus is doing? In this account, Jesus demonstrates he is actually far more than just a good Jewish teacher. He's the master teacher. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? 
See, I, I've heard it said that a, a wise teacher will often draw out of a student's, uh, out of their students, the the best possible insight, or or they will drive a point home more deeply by offering a deliberate challenge that doesn't exactly or necessarily reflect the teacher's actual views. They kind of go along with it and see where it leads, and they guide and steer and shape the conversation from that point into something where they want it to go. Parents often do this with their children, of course. And Jesus did this many times in his ministry. He would come across attitudes or ideas he intended to correct, but instead of just walking around pronouncing his view, he'd often, you know, kind of play along to make his teaching all the clearer. And that's what he's doing again here. I've also heard from a person who grew up in Middle Eastern culture say that that what's going on here seems perfectly obvious to Eastern ears, while it is utterly offensive to Western ears. That in Eastern dialogue, there's often this sense of banter where people kind of go at it playfully, but directly and bluntly, and often in front of an audience, and it's a way that they hash things out and do some teaching and learning and discussing. And so this person said when he reads this text, he just hears this Middle Eastern approach to dialogue. Jesus is playing a part. This is what they would do in banter. And, and he's doing this to draw this ugly reality of human nature out into view. He's got a goal. See, it's on their minds now, and it's on our minds too. Jesus is putting the ugliness of human nature right in the face of the people around him, in this audience, the, the crowd that would be around him, and he's doing this to test them. He's asking them. He's, he's challenging them. How are you going to respond? According to the pattern of this world, which worships the idol called power? Is that what you're going to do? Or according to the pattern of the kingdom of the true and living God? That's the decision. That's the test. And it's the woman, the Canaanite woman, who passes the test. In the ugly face of hostility, the woman responds according to the pattern of the kingdom of God. Her faith calls the bluff on hostility. She says, fine. Fine, I'll take the crumbs. Because because crumbs of truth and mercy and justice, morsels of who God really is, are better any day than eating your fill on the puffed-up loaves of racial superiority, masquerading as true religion. It's better than self-righteousness strutting around as if that's genuine faith and hope and love. This Canaanite woman refused to accept the traditional Jewish exclusion of Gentiles from the grace of God. And in so doing, she demonstrated a truly prophetic vision of the kingdom of heaven. The vision Isaiah had long ago foretold, uh, a kingdom that welcomes every foreigner, every outcast, every stranger, every downtrodden soul. And this woman's faithful grasp on the truth of the kingdom is what amazed Jesus. He called it great. In fact, this is the only time in all of Matthew's record of Jesus' life where Jesus commends someone's faith as great. 
there truly is something great going on here. This woman has a grasp on what Jesus is up to. She has a grasp on the gospel itself. She has a grasp of what the Apostle Paul would labor elabor- later elaborate on in the epistles, that the very essence of the good news of Jesus Christ is the removal of barriers and the destruction of hostility. And hostility is a pretty fair description for us, wouldn't you say? I mean, have you ever noticed how your relationships are constantly blowing up at work, in your family, at school, in your church? Things are always breaking down. Have you ever noticed how just about any action or statement tends to divide people into interest groups and factions? You can hardly talk about anything without someone thinking, well, Will my agreement or disagreement with this put me in the right preferred camp or not? And we might just say, well, that's the way the world works. But it's more than that. The truth is we we thrive on our hostility and our divisions, the walls between us. We like building them. We depend on them. Why? Because they're our security, they're our identity, our power. If we can wall ourselves off, or our group off from the rest, then we'll feel better, safer, and more powerful. If we can hoard the resources, then we can have our way. In other words, we will bank everything, body and soul, on things like our associations at work, who we hang out with at school, our national citizenship, maybe even our racial identity, rather than relying on a God whose kingdom not only transcends those dividing lines, but also explicitly repudiates them. Let's be honest, as uncomfortable as this teachable moment is from Matthew chapter 15, each of us have enacted countless more uncomfortable situations in our lives, haven't we? I mean, there's the family member that you have shunned for years, rage you've harbored against people who aren't like you, gossip or jokes you've shared at the expense of others, the resentment you nurse against a spouse or a relative or a co-worker or a neighbor, that you, you nurse that resentment to fuel your sense of entitlement. And the thing is, you know, we might kind of nod or go, yeah, yeah, you know, I do that from time to time. I make a few mistakes. But these are not just little misdemeanors on the grand scale of things. No, every mistreatment of another human being is cosmic treason. That's because the Lord God, the infinite, holy, almighty one, commands us to love one another. He even says to love our enemies and to do this just as surely as we are loved by an infinite and holy God. So what that means, in a terrifying way, is that every time you have added another brick in the wall between you and the people around you, you are adding another brick in the wall that separates you from God. Our hostility is a problem for life now and our eternal future. Because if we are at odds with God, we lose. But Jesus does not let hostility have the last word. He actually heals, he restores, and he destroys hostility. But how? 
Well, the Bible says that on the cross, God put hostility to death because on the cross, Jesus died. What does that mean, though? It means Jesus died for a very specific reason. The Bible says God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, become sin for us. That means God treated Jesus as if he'd been doing all the things we do to each other. That God treated Jesus as if he'd built the walls we build. That God treated Jesus as our hostility deserves. Jesus paid for our high crimes against humanity and our cosmic treason against the Lord God himself. But this was not God just beating up on his son. No, the son is also God. And the Bible says that the son of God offered himself up willingly. This was his plan too. To stand in our place as a hero, as a champion, as a rescuer and redeemer. Yet not only did that son of God die, he also rose again. And that resurrection obliterated the wall between death and life, the wall between God and mankind, and therefore the walls between you and those around you. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has brought you into a new kingdom that he calls the church. And in the church, the old distinctions we rely on, they don't matter. Indeed, they are not welcome here at all. There's no national flag in the church. No official language. No single culture. This is the embassy of a different kingdom. The minute you became a Christian, you weren't primarily from California or Idaho or Arizona or Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania anymore. You weren't primarily white or Latino anymore. You weren't primarily American or Asian or European anymore. You weren't even primarily known by your last name anymore. The categories that defined us are no longer in play, not ultimately anyway. We're above them and beyond them because we are in Christ. And your new membership, your new citizenship in the kingdom of Christ has a far greater impact on you than any of your previous identity groups. And here's what that looks like. If Christ has destroyed the barrier between you and God, then the walls between you and the people around you need to come down too. Right now, you might have something in your life that's got you hung up on anger or resentment or fear, which means that is your identity. It controls you. It defines you. Maybe you're scared, you're hurt, and people have done it to you. You can even do it to yourself, but you belong to Christ now and not to hostility. Embrace that truth. You, you don't need to be defined by pain and harm when you are in the arms of Christ now and forever. He can overcome some of the deepest hostilities of his day with a simple act of mercy. How much more will his greatest act of mercy on the cross overcome what's ailing you and your heart and your soul? Right now, you might feel like an island unto yourself when it comes to your life as a member of the Christian church. Can I go it alone? Perhaps you think of church like one of the many places where individuals come to download the right information into their brain and then move on as individuals once more. But look, the more alone you are in your Christianity, the less intimate you are with God. 
Why? Because God is found where his body is found, and the body of Christ is the church, the scriptures say. Jesus intends that we participate in the eternal community of the church, and even now we're meant to be bound together with other groups, with other Christians, by a a faithfulness and commitment that transcends our other groups, our interest groups, our ethnic groups, and so on. The Canaanite woman grasped that truth. She said, there's something bigger at play here. And we can grab hold of it, just as she did. Right now, you probably are also troubled by the growing divisions and tensions in our communities and our states and our nation. Much of what we see in the news is conduct all too familiar to people in this world. Folks tend to break along their old fault lines and circle the wagons and can't seem to come to a point where they might actually consider the other point of view and work for unity. But right now, in the face of all that, on this day, you are still part of a new kingdom where God intends to reconstitute humanity and restore what was destroyed by sin the same sin we see wreaking havoc all around our country right now. The church is a community of people without walls because the church is a community of people who live in the light of ultimate reality. God has called us to a foretaste of the future. Indeed, he has called us to be a foretaste of the future. God has called us to the radical new logic of the gospel, a reality that is as unfamiliar and challenging as they come, but one that is worth embracing even the crumbs of that kingdom are worth it. Christ has destroyed hostility. He has restored you to one another. He has restored you to God. And the time is coming when he will make everything new, right, perfect, and holy. And the unity of the new kingdom that we get the little morsels of today will replace hostility forever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The Te Deum We praise you, O God. We acclaim you as Lord. All creation worships you, Father everlasting. To you, all angels, all the powers of heaven, cherubim and seraphim, sing in endless praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord God of heavenly host, heaven and earth are full of your glory. The glorious company of apostles praise you. The noble fellowship of prophets praise you. The white-robed army of martyrs praise you. Throughout the world, the holy church acclaims you. Father of majesty unbounded, your glorious true and only Son, and the Holy Spirit, Advocate and Guide. You, Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father. When you became man to set us free, you humbled yourself to be born of a virgin. You overcame the sting of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You sit at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father. We believe that you will come to be our judge. Come then, Lord, and help your people, bought with the price of your own blood, and bring us with your saints to glory everlasting. 
Let us pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, your mercy attends us all our days. Be our strength and support amid the wearisome changes of this world, and at life's end, grant us your promised rest and the full joys of your salvation. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. O God, you have called your servants to ventures of faith, of which we cannot see the ending, by paths as yet untrodden, through perils unknown. Give us faith to go out with good courage, not knowing where we go, but only that your hand is leading us, and your love supporting us, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Let us praise the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Mm -hmm.